most of the people that come up to me, I can have a, a decent conversation. It's not like when you're online and somebody is blasting vitriol at you and you can sort of dehumanize them so easily because it's just text on a screen. But when someone's in your face, even if they are just an ignorant racist, they're still human and their emotions are real. And every time it's happened to me, as defensive as I get, I always feel slightly guilty as well for just making them feel upset because that's not my aim. My aim is to try to talk to them and bring them closer to sort of a rational position. At the end of it, they're still probably a little bit xenophobic, but they're maybe a little bit less xenophobic. And so that's my aim. It's not to sort of purify the world and end racism because no one's that powerful. And so I just think having empathy for your enemies is actually a very valuable thing and it makes you more effective when it comes to trying to create change. That is Australian artist and author Peter Drew. And this is episode 305 of Better Than Yesterday. Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osha Ginsberg, and this is my show. This is my podcast. It's simply a conversation designed to help you make today a bit better than yesterday. That's it. I guarantee it. In the next hour or so, you'll hear something that'll make you think, oh, I never really considered that. Hmm. As a result, today will become a little bit better than yesterday. That's what I'm here to do. That's what we are here to do. Big thank you very much to everybody who got great feedback on Monday's episode with Dr. Nick Fuller. You can find him on Instagram at Interval Weight Loss. He had a great time and uh, his books are very interesting and I know a lot of people got a bunch of help out of that because, you know, science. Also, uh, thank you very much to those who did send a review on iTunes. That always helps us very, very much. Aside from recommending the show to somebody else, um, you know, just showing somebody how to download it in their phone or, you know, just say, hey, I had that on a show. You might like it. Yeah, the guy with the bachelor, yeah, the suits, yeah, the masks, yeah, whatever you want to say, uh, really helps us. And also the reviews on iTunes really, really help us. We crack the top 50, team. We crack the top 50. We never crack the top 50. That's awesome. Um, big thank to, I believe it's Refinis. It's, it's an iTunes customer review username. Um, but it was a five-star review from Refinis. Thank you for sharing your own and other stories to help make today a little bit better yesterday. Well, thank you very much. From Rubbish Doc Reader. Five-star review. Thank you, Osha. After my marriage breakdown early this year, I found your podcasts even more beneficial. They really do make each day a little bit better than yesterday. Oh, been there. Rubbish. That's probably not your real name. I've definitely been there. And uh, yeah, just gets a little bit better every day. I promise you. And from Words Ate My Breakfast, thank you, Osha. This podcast continues to remind me that today can be better than yesterday. Well, that's great. I'm grateful that you did get in touch and you did you leave a review because that does help us enormously. Um, it helps when people come look for the show and it helps us in those charts and uh, those charts help us get and continue to get really, really good guests. It's also great to see where you're listening. I love it when you email me. I love it. You take a photo of what you're looking at right now because chances are you're listening to this on a device that has a camera on it and the ability to then send that digital picture to me. Send Osher email at gmail.com. Nairi, from what I can gather by the email address, Nairi's a photographer, and Nairi uh, wrote... I love the wisdom I receive from your podcast. I always listen on the treadmill in my compound in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. 
Saudi Arabia, yes. And she sent a picture of uh, just uh, like looking out of a, like a hotel gym onto, out to a swimming pool and the, the familiar kind of hazy Middle East air. Thank you so much, Nairi. Wow, exciting times. Exciting times out in Riyadh for you. Chris wrote, uh, congrats on Wolfie, stoked the adventure your family's starting. Uh, your chat with Dr. Nick Filler could not have come at a better time for me. I've been overweight for years, but after some inspirational podcasts, yours included, I've dropped 20 kilos and frequently run 10 kilometers, and I love it. Thank you so much. My podsy is packing to move to sunny Cuba PD. Plenty of boxes and plenty of help from my toddler. Oh, happy, happy days. Great news to hear that. And um, a great one from Karen, who just sent a picture of uh, basically her feet under a blankie and a sideboard saying, I'm recovering from laparoscopy. I uh, hope the surgery went well, and I hope you're feeling better. But it's always great to know where you're listening, and I'm grateful that uh, this show is a part of your week, wherever it is and whatever it is that you are doing, wherever you are in the world. To check in real quick, um, this show originally is coming out on the 7th of October. I'm recording it the day before, 2019. There's a big day of climate action protests in Sydney uh, tomorrow. As of right now, I don't know if I'm going to go or not. don't know if I'll be okay to go or not. I'll see how I feel in the morning. Um, I have been able to help in other ways and I'm able to continue to help in other ways. I don't know if I'll get boots on the ground just yet, but uh, I do try as hard as I can to be as active as I can and and trying to bring conversations to you this way and try and support in other ways financially by donating um, where I can because climate action is all of our business. Uh, You can send an email, you can make a phone call, you can write a letter to a member of parliament. It works. Action like that works. I regularly write to members of parliament let them know my concerns as an Australian, as a voter, as a as a parent. Uh, it's important. It's really important. It's way more important than retweeting or liking something on a Facebook page that's only looked at by people who will agree with it anyway. No, that doesn't do anything. You actually have to, you know, write to these MPs. You've actually got to write to them, pen and paper or an email or a fax. I use a fax as well. It's somebody's job to open those letters. It's somebody's job to tell that member of parliament what's in those letters. And they keep a track of all of it and say, this is the pulse of the community. Um, that's how they make their choices. That's how they make their decisions. It's important. You've got to do it. And, and sometimes they even write back. I've received a few letters um, back. And it's, you know, it goes to show that, like, yes, there's a bit of an effort uh, to write to them, but then there's effort on their part as well to engage a staff member who actually write a letter in an envelope, put it in a post box and send it back to you. And that's that's enough to know that it's on the radar, all right, particularly with issues around climate change and bringing it to their attention that you, as a member of the voting public, are very concerned. So um, if you can't make it to a protest today, that's okay. You can send an email, you can write a letter, you can make a phone call because that's the stuff that works. It really does. It really does. Let them know you're a voter and let them know this concerns you. You know, these are people who are (laughs) self-interested. They want to stay in power. (laughs) So if you say, I vote and I'm worried about this, they'll be like, well, let me see what I can do. It's important. If you've been listening over the last few weeks, you know that I've recently, oh, a couple of months back now, I changed therapists and I've been back on meds for about, what is it, August? About eight weeks. And, um... No, it's October. Goodness me. Fuck, I had a baby. That's right. 12 weeks. And I've been working hard on my exposure therapy. So nothing really much new to tell there except this week. I, I guess I was at the gym this week and I did a PB on one particular lift. I did 125 kilos on this one lift. And I was like, yeah, that's the heaviest thing I've ever done. That's awesome. And um, it hurt, but I did it. And similarly, I think I did the same thing in my head with my therapist on Friday. 
because we were looking at some heavy shit, yo. Like doing that exposure therapy, man. She opens a laptop up and she goes, all right, just keep looking. Don't look away. Don't look away. Keep looking. Keep looking. All right, that's 20 seconds. And fucking I do it for like five minutes. Um, but I know like when I go to the gym and I push into that discomfort and I push myself to the the, the, the limit or just below more, just at my limit of how hard, hard I can lift and how heavy I can lift, I know that my body with recovery will come back and the next time I try, it'll be, I can be stronger and lift more. Same way. It hurts. It sucks. I'm breathless. I'm dizzy. I fall on the floor. But the same thing happens in my head. And I've got to do it. Just got to do it. Because life is just too short to wake up in fear every day. And I don't want to do that. So yeah, similar to what happens in the gym. I know I've got to take time to recover. I was pretty ropey on Friday. That's for sure. Afterwards. But I know that if I recover, I can come back stronger. I think on Friday, I think my brain had DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness. When you go to the gym and then you're I'm fine the next day, but then two days later, ooh. Um, I think my brain had that. It was intense, but, you know, we, we carry on and I've been great, greatly supported by my wife, which is, which is wonderful. Um, but I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to do it because without doing this work, I'm useless to the people that matter to me in my life and I just want to be there for them. So I know I've got to do it. I've got to do it. I did mention on Friday that I'm trying to get another podcast up with Charlie Clawson. Yes, Charlie Clawson from TOFOP, like the Australian podcast that's been running for 10 years, with him and Will Anderson. Charlie and I um, uh, both had babies. Well, we didn't have babies. Our wives had babies within about, I think, three and a half weeks of each other. And uh, we've decided to, we started recording when we were both still pregnant. Uh, so we've got a couple of episodes of a new podcast that he and I are trying to do together, which is called Dad Pod. So I'd love to get your questions. If you have any thoughts, if you have any advice, if you have anything, we've got a section of the show that we'd love to, you know, get some correspondence going. AskDadPod at gmail.com. That's it. Love to get your thoughts there. You know, what do you think about this? Or have you guys tried that? Or my mum told me this, don't do it. It doesn't work. Whatever. It'd be fun. AskDadPod at gmail.com. And also, thank you so much for all the support around The Masked Singer. It's a really, really fun show to do. And I hope you can see that. We really enjoy making it. You made us number one four times in a row. We're four from four, which is unheard of in this market. And we're thrilled. Uh, we're back tonight. We're back tomorrow night. And uh, this Wednesday and Thursday, we're back with Bachelorette for 2019. My boss texted me the other day. The CEO texted me the other day. He goes, are you ready for Russia week? <laughs> Goodness gracious. Four nights in a row, prime time, two different formats. It's bonkers. I was unemployed before I got The Bachelor. And now we're here. You know what? I, and if you read the book that I wrote, you'll know that my mentor, the guy that guides me through my days, when I told him I lost all my last jobs, he goes, I'm excited for you, pal. I said, why is that? He goes, because the universe has got something bigger in plan. I didn't want to hear him because I'd just lost all my jobs and I was unemployed and I'm paying rent out of my savings living in America. You know what? He was right. <laughs> you just got to trust it. You just got to trust it. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So let me tell you about my guest today. Peter Drew is an artist and an author from Adelaide, Australia. He's famous for the political street poster campaigns that he has put up all over the country. Uh, the very famous one, Aussie, which featured a picture of Monga Khan, among others, and Real Australians Say Welcome. Uh, those two campaigns basically took on a life of their own as they uh, started getting seen around cities in our country. Peter holds a master's degree from the Glasgow School of Art. His artworks have been exhibited at the Art Gallery of South Australia, the National Gallery of Australia, but clearly his most prominent work is installed on the streets of Australia and the world. He's written a book about his life and the adventures and challenges he's faced doing the art that he does. The book is called Poster Boy. It's available where you buy books or at his website, peterdrewarts.com. It's an unflinching look at modern Australia. I was very grateful to read an early copy of it. Poster Boy is a tale literally told from the streets. It's a stark story where the villains blend in with those devoted for pushing for change. And it's extraordinary listening to the way he describes it. The book absolutely floored me. I, I thoroughly recommend it. This conversation is just the tip of the iceberg to get you into the kind of human being that Peter Drew is. We're grateful. I'm grateful that this country has a man like him in it. Uh, the conversation does get quite deep. Uh, we even talk about nuclear power. Uh, and I'm stoked that Peter made the time to chat with me. If you like what you hear, please let me know. He's at Peter Drew Arts everywhere. That's also PeterDrewArts.com, but also Twitter and Instagram. Enjoy this conversation with Peter Drew. Hello, Peter. Hello. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks for having me. How are you today? Pretty good. Pretty good. I got some posters put up this morning, so that's nice. It's like a, a workout. I feel set for the day. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, when did your day start? What does it look like? Um, I got up at about seven and I had glue already made. And so I just went out and put a few up. When I'm, when I'm usually out, I'm from Adelaide, but when I'm in Sydney or Melbourne, it's weird for me to be here and not be putting up posters. So I've got to do a bit. Now, I'm, you've been doing this a little while now, so I'm guessing you wouldn't have to recce sites. You've already got a, a couple of spots that you know are good. Yeah, but it's not as – I do. I have spots that I know I can put up posters, but it's just not as fun as finding that new spot. I've got to do a bit of that as well. It's my favourite thing to do. So so where where were you this morning? Oh, just in central Sydney. I mean, there's, there's lots of hoarding boards, so it's pretty easy to find spots. Uh-huh. What went up today? Um, well, I've got a new poster. It's not as 
confrontational with some of my other stuff, and it's not about national identity. I brought one in as a present for you. So, oh, thank you. And it says, "Real power forgives," and so it's very. It's very soft in a way and it's sort of written in sand on a beach because it's a fragile message that can easily be lost and I just felt like doing something that was more down that route rather than like so much of my other stuff is so forceful and in your face. So, yeah. Yeah, which is, I, I think the, fir- the first, I didn't know it was yours until I read your book. The first one I, I saw of yours was the runs on money makes you fat oh, really? car versus bike. <laughs> And the bike was runs on fat, saves you money. Yeah. 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 It was a stencil. Mm. I remember walking past it years ago somewhere. I can't even remember where I was going. I ride bikes. That's cool. And I didn't even know that was you. Yeah. That was the first shot I ever had at making a meme. And I thought that was funny to sort of see it. The one that you saw could have been done by anybody because I I did some and then the idea got picked up and it's still on being printed on t-shirts and mugs and whatever else around the world so and that's a great feeling creating something that other people sort of snatch up and go that's ours now um of course you can't sort of live off ideas that other people would <laughs> just appropriate but um it did give me some sort of creative satisfaction uh now, i have to ask are you a bicycle riding kind of guy yeah absolutely i, I do ride less these days but for the first sort of I don't know, I guess like 10 years of adulthood, that was the only way I got around. And I was pretty, I wasn't really fanatical about it, but I love the, you know, just seeing how reliant I could be just on my bike. Adelaide's a pretty good spot yeah. for that. Nice yeah. and flat. And it's pretty good. But I, yeah, I still, people ask, ask me about bicycles and I'm like, nothing compares to that first summer when you get your first bike and suddenly you're no longer confined to an area defined by your parents. Mm-hmm. I can now oh. go further than I can walk. Exactly. And you start exploring the yeah. suburbs. I'd, I'd love that. Yeah. That period of life was just great. But, yeah. Um, yeah. But even as an adult, when I, got, when I moved to Los Angeles and I got, a, I got my first bike in LA and I started just riding around, like, wow, Los Feliz, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was just really exciting because you explore at a different pace from when you're when you're in a car yeah and it's when you're an adult it's you're driving you're riding past all the cars that are stuck in traffic and they're looking for a park you're like well my park's everywhere yeah yeah i ride a not only do i ride a bicycle i also ride a, a scooter now i have a an electric scooter which is a lot of fun oh, i saw the helmet out there actually yeah, yeah, yeah. i park literally downstairs so everywhere is your parking spot when you ride changes like living in a city like sydney it completely changes everything i bet but yeah it's it's superb now we met for the first time in Adelaide. I was I was so blown away that you said, hi, I'm Peter Drew. <laughs> I was doing an event down there. It was about a year ago, actually, just over a year ago. I was doing an event down there and after the show, there was a, a chance to come and say hi and, and, and meet everybody. And then you just popped out of the crowd and I... I I was so honoured that you showed up. Well, I thought it'd be nice to say hello because I I really enjoyed your book and I was at that stage of just sort of being about halfway through writing my book and I thought, well, if Osha likes... And I knew you liked my posters, yes. so I thought it'd be great to touch base. And I just sort of thought there were similarities in some ways. You wrote a memoir, I was writing a memoir. Um, and I, I guess I was just looking for support in some ways because, you know, you need to find the confidence to get things done. Yeah. And so it was good to just say hello. <laughs> Mate, I was so touched because I've spoken about it on this show before. It's like when I do things like that a lot of the times and rightly so, people come up and they're like, 
you know, it's, it's often the first time they, sometimes it's the first time they've shared that thing that you described about right. happened to me as well. And so I'm in the middle of having all these heavy conversations and then you <laughs> Just getting up. saturated. And it, it was like, ah, <laughs> it's you. Uh, when I first saw the, the Monga Khan poster, you talk about, let's just get a couple of definitions out first. Like you say my first, people think a meme is, uh, I don't know, something they see on Instagram and like. What actually is a meme? Well, the meme is an idea that Richard Dawkins came up with to, as an analogy really for culture and breaking culture into units in the same way that our, uh, in, in our, the way our DNA is transferred through uh, biology. So you can think of any piece of culture as being, you can think of it memetically as, as memes. And so uh, culture tries to, it almost has a will of its own in some sense. Um, it wants to replicate itself. It wants to pass from person to person in the same way that our genetic material wants to continue. And so it's really obvious when you look at internet memes, you can see that's an idea that's been copied and passed along. But in the same way, uh, and, and Dawkins goes into this, that a religion is a meme, a large set of memes, like a big bundle of, of, of ideas that wants to replicate itself and it tries to make itself useful. It attaches onto human needs. And it's just an interesting way of, of thinking of culture as having a sort of a will of its own in some sense. All it really wants to do is survive, just as biology really wants to do, just survive. And so... Um, I don't know. That's just a. It's it's an interesting sort of mechanism through which to sort of look at culture. So um, I I think of my posters that way. Sometimes I sort of want to make an idea that people can easily copy, so that they can make it their own. When the, the, you mentioned talk about the replication, there is something fascinating about, and we've all seen a meme that we go, yeah, whatever. We've seen a meme that we click like on we've seen a meme that we'll screenshot and then share as our own and then we've all seen a meme that we've gone oh now i feel differently about the world sure and then it kind of it, there's different levels of it i guess yeah absolutely i mean culture does all sorts of different things and a lot of the memes you'll see are pretty uh, i guess they're pretty simple in that they don't do all that much or or at least a lot of internet memes you'll find a, a sort of have a nasty edge to them but, um, but ultimately, the ones that are really successful, the memes that, well, you can just, I mean, they're just ideas, really. The ones that last are the ones that give us something back and are useful and help. And what I try to do in my case is create ideas that perhaps relieve some of the anxiety that we have about the world around us because God knows that it, it builds up and gets to the point that you want to uh, want some relief and sometimes all you need is an idea that you can share with others that relieves that anxiety i i couldn't agree more when i saw the monga khan poster which is a poster uh, i can't ever remember his he was afghan well he was born in india but he was uh, as far as i know this is the advice i've been given but it is a complicated part of the world right um he was pashtun which is uh, ethnically afghan right but he was definitely born in what is today india and was in australia as a what was he doing here? he was a hawker so right. he would have had a horse and cart and sold wares like a basically a traveling general store right Okay, which is a Deliveroo, but 1800s, you know. <laughs> exactly. And it's just a photo of, it was a picture, a beautiful photograph, extraordinary photograph. There was this 
dashingly handsome man, just proud in uh, wearing the uh, the outfit, the traditional dress of his home country, which I'm guessing at the time was like the only clothes he had. And it's just one simple all caps word that just says Aussie. And exactly what you were saying, when I saw that poster, I'm like, oh, thank goodness it's not just me. And it was an enormous sense of relief because, you know, being confronted, having, and I know you did the same thing, having lived overseas for so long, and then I came back and, you know, Tony Abbott's in charge and, you know, this whole, like, wait, what is, wait a second here. This is really not what I remember. And then to see that, oh, it's not just me, it was at least there's one other person that has a similar outlook on what the hell's going on. And that made me feel a whole lot better. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad. That's, that's, that's exactly what I, what I hoped for. Because, I mean, you've got to remember when I started doing those posters as well, it was 2016 and it was a particularly bad year in terms of just rising xenophobia. The, um, there had just been the, the Lint Cafe siege and so there's this real feeling of what is going on. And then there started, you started seeing groups like Reclaim Australia. All of a sudden, Pauline Hanson reappeared out of nowhere, having been gone for 10 years. And so, yeah, there was this sort of rising anxiety. And I thought what I love about Australia is our, uh, our welcoming attitude. And I don't want to see that, that identity get hijacked by a bunch of uh, fearful, close-minded people. And so you, you sort of... I try to find ways to find the middle ground in some sense because I, I do have sympathy for the people who are, are afraid. Uh, it's perfectly human. And, and so trying to find some middle ground is, is basically what I'm always trying to do. When it comes to stuff like this, and, and certainly in, in your early work, which you uh, in the book you describe quite wonderfully and honestly, like I'm doing this poster and it's, it's quite cynical and it's almost, it's a bit slap in the face, a bit fuck you. Yeah. And then quite honestly admitting, oh, that didn't do the job. That's just made, no, nah, now people are just recoiled. Why is that? Why is it when, for example, the poster I'm thinking about is the stop the boats, stop illegal immigration to Australia, save the Aboriginal people from illegal British immigration. That's yeah. a, it's a, and you, it's a poster you put up in London. Yeah didn't do what you were looking for. Well, the weird thing is it was a very popular poster and I still like it, but and I think this is something that people who follow me will perhaps find unexpected about the book is that it is really full of doubt and me coming to terms with the fact that political certainty is dangerous and that in order to make good art, especially, you need to use doubt. It's, your, it's a valuable raw material you have to take doubt and apply it to your ideas and try to make them better and so uh the stop the boats poster yeah it is a bit of a fuck you to the other side but it doesn't offer any solution and it's actually very easy to just bathe in self-righteous irony but it doesn't really help anybody and i could have made those posters forever they're easy to come up with but it doesn't contend with the reality that there really is very little difference between us and the people who we have strong disagreements with. And so you've got to do the hard work in, in saying, so I'm not that different to you. And, and what is it really? What is it that's really separating us? And unless you're willing to sort of come out of your camp, 
you can't really expect the other side to come out of theirs and, and meet you somewhere in that no man's land. Well, you definitely go out of your way to meet people in that no man's land because they you're standing on the side of the road in broad daylight wearing high-vis, pasting these posters up and, and you describe quite often people coming up to you and angrily sometimes encountering you. Uh, that's tricky, I'm sure. Yeah, it's tricky, but it's, it's so... It's, what's really confronting about it is that there's a real human being it's not like when you're online and somebody is blasting vitriol at you and you can sort of just dehumanize them so easily because it's just text on a screen. But when someone's in your face, even if they are just a, you know, the worst of the worst, just an ignorant racist, they're still human and their emotions are real. And every time it's happened to me, as defensive as I get, I always feel slightly guilty as well for just making them feel upset because that's not my aim my aim is to try to uh, talk to them and bring them uh, closer to sort of a rational position and sometimes that's possible and most of the time it is like most of the people that come up to me and say oh who's this guy he doesn't look like an Aussie to me which is just you know I've heard that so many times I can have a, a decent conversation about who he was and who the other people in the series are and we at the end of it, they're still probably a little bit xenophobic, but they may be a little bit less xenophobic. And so that's my aim. It's not to sort of purify the world and end racism because, I mean, no one's that powerful. And, you know, these problems have been around for a very long time. And so I just think having empathy for your enemies is actually a very valuable thing and it makes you it makes you more effective when it comes to trying to create change that is a recurring theme as i was reading i was very lucky and i got a i got an advanced copy and i got a chance to read it over the various planes trains automobiles and, and ubers that um i was traveling upon at the time and empathy and your your, your willingness to the th- two things that really struck me mate was the your willingness to go oh fuck i missed that I got that wrong. I was a bit too angry to that bloke. And just because that's something that you often don't see from people who are, I guess, campaigning for a more compassionate world is to go, oh, yeah, I fucked up there. I'd be angry at that fella. Might have turned him away. That and the, your just the exploration of empathy throughout throughout the book. I found that really, really quite interesting. As you've got, you're a, a student of psychology, you studied. As we've gone along in these last couple of years what what's happened to empathy in our in our world oh it's such a enormous question but it is we've got a lot of time man (laughs) (laughs) it's so hard to to sum up something that large i mean and and i sort of struggle with it in the book because it's it's tied up with with masculinity as well especially okay well let's explore that let's dive into that part there tell me because you mentioned reclaim australia you mentioned you know the people that come up to you often uh people your dad's age pretty much always white what happens there in where's empathy what's going on well, I mean, when someone is fearful of the posters and it's and it typically is a sort of an old white man, I just think that, I don't know, those people are probably trapped in a bubble of some sort. And in most cases, they've probably ne- never met a Muslim man. And they've just, I guess, attached their identity to feeling a certain amount of fear and anger. And it, that's, 
I think feelings like that actually become precious to us after a while because they give us, you know, somewhere to hang our identity. And when that identity is being threatened, it's better to hold, like, well, at least there's a feeling of comfort you get from feeling that fear and anger. Um, and, and sometimes, not always, but sometimes it's as simple as just recognizing that person and giving them some other option. Is there an encounter that you can perhaps recall where it went okay? Yeah, no, I think that it's it's much easier when the person is not completely defensive, when they're just a little bit fearful. And then I can just sort of explain the details of, well, this man is not just a, a Muslim man. He's not just an identity. He was a, a personality. I really, I think if that is, if there is any sort of tool which you can take and, and use in, in, sort of in confrontations you have in your everyday life, not confrontations, discussions, let's mm-hmm. call them that. It's to treat people as if they have an, a personality, as if they mm. are a person and not just a identity, which you have um, reduced to being um, f- uh, just an object of fear. And mm. so um, whenever people come and say to me, oh, that doesn't look like an Aussie, I say, well, this guy's name was Monka Khan. He worked as a hawker, you know, um, and I chose him because I think that he would have been an interesting person to get to know, you know. And, and, and when you start to look at him as a real person, all of a sudden the fear can just sort of melt away. The, yeah, there's that. That's it's not mine, that, but I, I do like to remember it that everybody has just as much as you do. They have a favorite thing to eat, they have a favorite song, they have a favorite TV show, they have a favorite person, they have a favorite thing to do with that person, no matter. Even our mates from Reclaim Australia with the weird face tattoos, they have all that stuff, you know. They have a favourite thing to eat and favourite people to eat with, you know. Is there somewhere in there? Like, I don't know how I'd go with a name like Ginsburg trying to speak to, to those cats, but I'd be interested. I'd be inter- it'd be an interesting day. It would be. It would be. I mean, yeah, I mean, really, like, I mean, what the point about, what I'm try- that I'm trying to make about identity is, I mean, that problem is on both sides of politics, yeah. is, is people sort of heading towards their, their identity group and feeling safer within it. And I try to describe this in the book in, in that I think it's a part of a larger spiritual poverty that we're going through, in, especially in the Western world. Um, and you call it what you like, but it's that breakdown of larger unifying ideas that have traditionally been trafficked by religions. Um, and I'm not a religious person, but I sort of see the the need for large uh, ideas like uh, love that sort of pull us together. And in a world in which reason is dominant and things like neoliberalism, that's the one that is most often criticised. It, sort of, item, it uh, sort of atomizes us, makes us only individuals and not part of anything larger. It's only natural that people sort of rush to these identities for, for safety. Now, that is very interesting, and particularly in our culture, because as soon as you started talking about that it atomizes us, yes, it does. Here in Australia, we are divided into these tiny little granular objects within a community Mm. and as religion fades from influence in our society over the last 50 100 years that becomes the granularity that becomes smaller and smaller and smaller but there is something within us that require i need to be around other people like me i need to feel safer when i'm around people that think and see the world i want the feeling that i i got from looking at your poster from you know this person yet other cultures particularly asian cultures particularly china would be like I oh, know I'm part of a big thing here and I'm when the state 
says, this is what we're going to do, I go, fuck yeah, because I'm a part of it. And mm-hmm. culturally, you, you feel a part of it. I noticed that in South Africa, South Africa, the, the people are like, oh, no, no, we're all here. We're all here. This is us. We did this thing 25 years ago and we're here. Let's, let's, it's hard. It's fucked. Everything's wrong. But we're here and we're so proud of it. And, you know, when I think about what advantage that gives a nation over someone like ours who's like, oh, I want a bigger lawnmower, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I miss that, you know. I, yeah. I, I feel that, you know. And, but what is what does it take? It takes that galvanizing thing of a of a nation to have. We, I don't know if we ever had that as a nation. Yeah, it's interesting when you think about it. What is it that our people are proud of? I mean, and there are great elements of it. That sort of anti-authoritarian sort of larrikinism. There's sort of a bad side to that, but it's kind of that distrust of. Authority, that's a great thing. And it's a great thing to leverage for change. But really, I mean, all of these, especially national identity, that's actually one of the great things about national identity. And this is what people on the the left dislike about what I sort of do with my posters, is that the nation state is, it took a lot of effort to sort of evolve that idea. And it, it was definitely a lot better than the feudalism we had before then. And the sort of art I create wouldn't exist if it weren't for the safe harbour of a liberal nation state. And so I just think that, and the great thing about it is is that it's malleable. What is Australia? That's really up to us. It can change over time and has been and will continue to be. And it isn't something that needs to be morally pure. I mean, what political system is? Like the, every nation on the planet has had a terrible history and it's just trying to... Uh, fix it up as it goes. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When I was reading, uh, the, and I think I, when I went with you, I was grateful to be asked to leave a quote for the, the cover slip. And when I was working with your publisher uh, on what I was going to say, I was just so fucking floored by... You know, I, I think I'm someone, I like to think of myself as someone who's kind of centrist, but I, if I walked in a straight line, I'd probably end up a few metres to the left after about a K, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's kind of, it's pretty much, yeah, there's some things I feel a bit yeah, conservative about, some things I feel a bit, but generally I'm kind, of, I'm kind of centrist. But because of the general nature of our national conversation, I appear extraordinarily left. Um I'm not. I feel the same. I mean, it's. I, I just. You've got to acknowledge that there are pathologies on both sides mm. of politics, and I mean, I'm an artist. Of course, I'm. I lean to the left, but I. There are members of my family that are much more on the right, 
and there are pe- and they're people that I love and have empathy with. So I can't demonize them. Um, and I just, I just, if you look at political history, it's sort of the people who are so completely convinced of their side end up creating more harm than good in the long run. Well, and this is a thing that broke my heart about your book was the confrontations that you describe with people who are more conservative or more on the right. I fairly much expected. I was like, yeah, that's a script that's been repeated in this country and in, in Europe, in Germany, in North, Northern Europe, whatever. That's the same. This person's just saying the same words that they've read on a website somewhere. They've read it on 4chan or whatever, and they're saying it to your face. That doesn't surprise me whatsoever. It's the people on the left that came for you that I was like, fuck, we've got no hope. We've got no fucking hope. Because if that's what if that's what we've got as opposition, if that's the active, I'm ready to go into war for you know to fight the status quo. If the, fuck, we are fucked, and that <laughs> broke my heart. Like how it was as angry, but from a completely different perspective. Yeah, it makes me almost more angry because someone coming from the front, like the the angry racist guy coming at me, I can handle that. They're a dime a dozen, but someone coming from behind and who's meant to be on my side is trying to undermine what I'm doing. You know, I've gotten used to expecting that. And it's it's sort of, it is more amusing in some ways because it's it, it's sillier. I mean, I one of the ones I liked in the book was a, a lady in Sydney in one of the the posher suburbs. And she, I was taking, I was fixing up one of my posters on the way home and she thought I was taking it down. And because I was dressed, you know, like a worker, because I had the high vis on and stuff, she thought that I was like a council worker getting rid of it. And she started filming me and saying, don't, don't take down that poster. What she, think, uh, she goes, oh, this suburb's white enough. Thank you very much. And so she was there, this white lady. And it, I just thought it was a class thing, really. And I didn't like someone using my poster as a way of asserting the superiority, the moral superiority of her class. And... I can't stop people from doing that. I can't stop people from using my posters to say, look at the, uh, these working class people, oh, aren't they so racist? And I just think that's, that's terrible. It's really, and it's frustrating, but so I, I really want to make a point in the book of saying how much I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, I, I know the suburb you speak of. There are, some, there are plenty of nice people there as well. There are plenty of nice But then they all have their, they all, it was, um, <sighs> I was doing an interview once for the remake of Tron, all right, and it was uh, the, uh, the British actor Michael Sheen, who's in one of my favourite films ever, the one that made me want to do this podcast in the first place, a film called Frost Nixon. And I said, "Oh, you did, a, you played a really good baddie," and I, you know, he was quite a mean baddie in that Tron. And he goes, in a perfectly English way, he goes, "Well, that's the best thing about baddies; they all believe they're doing the right thing." <laughs> and in that that sentence, I was like. I just kind of unlocked all my anger at, I was like, of course, you know, Tony Abbott is who he is because as far as he's concerned, he's saving me as well. He's like, you just don't know yet, young man. I'm actually saving you. Allow me to help you here because I know what's right. And it blew my mind. (laughs) It blew my mind. Everyone thinks they're doing the right thing. Absolutely. I mean, the way I think about politics I think of it as a good analogy for it is that it's like an ecosystem. You actually you need the people who are on both sides. You actually need the extremists. They're good to sort of use as examples for how not to be. You know, but it's you need the uh, the predators and the prey. It's I mean I don't mean that sort of literally, but as a metaphor, 
it's not something that should be sort of purified. It's you need the balance. And it's very, especially when you're young, you sort of, you go, oh, wouldn't the world be better if there was just no conflict? Well, if there's no conflict, there'd be no dynamism. There'd be no change. And so, yeah, very much, I mean, the book is very much about me sort of coming to terms or just growing up really and, and realizing that, you know, you can sort of believe in a, a humble progress. Things will move forward at a humble pace, but you're not going to just convert the other side to your views. And that, that's the thing that I struggle with, you know, all, all the time. As you, as you know, in, in, in my book, the, I joke with my psychiatrist about it all the time. It's like, why the fuck couldn't I get, uh, you know, slip into psychosis over scaffolding or, <laughs> or geese or something that, or <laughs> even uh, 5G? Because there's people who struggle a lot with, there's this unseen thing that's hurting my head or, you know, it was radio waves in the fifties and now it's, you know, you know, why can't I slip into psychosis over something like, no, it has to be something that is fucking hundred percent scientifically proven happening today. Very, very scary. We really need to work on it. But my fear response to it is ballistic. Sure. You know, and it's very, very tough. And the, these last couple of days with, um, you know, the UN climate summit going on, I've been really fucking hard. You know, I'm not going to lie, but at the same time, you know, as what we were discussing earlier, you know, watching young Greta speak, it was like, oh, thank goodness. That's the thing, like way louder, that's the thing that's been in my head for the last seven years or five, six years, whatever it was. And and hear it, thank fuck. All right, it's not just me. Uh, and that was, you know. Did you say that had a sort of a calming effect, you found? A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. But it's offset by the fact that we've just had a baby and I'm like, fuck, son. Got to get this done before your eighth birthday. What the fuck? How are we going to do that? You know, it's really full on, man. It's, yeah. re- it's really full on. But, you know, I think the last 72 hours we've witnessed quite a moment in our human history, to be honest. Between her and Pelosi pulling impeachment on Trump, that's like, <laughs> it's like what a fucking time to be alive, man. Yeah, you're not going to – like it's like that Chinese um, curse, may you live in interesting times. <laughs> I'll never forget. Who, the first time I ever heard that was Josh Zepps's dad, Henry Zepps. He was on a show called Kingswood Counter a million years ago. I, was, I was, used to be a voiceover artist and I was in it. And it was, I just got back from New York and um, I'd been in September 11 and I was fucking super scared. And the front page of The Australian was just like showing cruise missiles being shot at some country. And, I, and he just looked at it and went, hmm. May you live in interesting times. <laughs> but it is. What an interesting week. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I remember because I grew up sort of, uh, in the 90s and I remember feeling almost cheated that my life seemed like it was going to be so boring. It was like the end of history time narrative. Like everything was, was done and dusted. And I... Uh, was sort of nostalgic for my parents' generation who grew up in the 60s and all that social change. And it looked like things were just going to sort of peter on. And then all of a sudden, on it was the week of my year 12 exams, September 11 happened. And I thought, whoa, life is going to be different <laughs> than I expected. <laughs> oh, far out. This ecosystem that you describe is very interesting in this purity idea of why can't everything just be this way and just coming to acceptance that incrementalism mm-hmm. is how change has always happened. And, you know, I was just actually, I was, because yesterday I was like, what the fuck am I, and I emailed a guy I know who's a, he works in finance and I'm like, mate, you right now, you've got more power than any government because you've got the balls to put investment dollars behind 
you know, carbon sequestration and, and stuff like that, you're going to be able to move faster than any government can. What do you, what can we do? What can we do? And he wrote back going, looks, man, I'm a big believer in incrementalism. And as you just mentioned, he said, what that means is it's not going to happen fast enough for what you want, but it is going to happen. And just being an acceptance of that is really hard. But yeah. I have to remember that's how things change. Yeah. And, but um, sometimes there are revolutions, but yeah. You know, the whole word, the word revolution is is circular. It's about things sort of going back the other way as well. And I understand that when I talk about uh, moderation and and taking the middle way and incrementalism, it's it, it sounds like I oh, don't try to fix the world to some people. But I, for me, it's more about and this is why I wanted to talk to you about it is because it's about psychological health. Really, one of the ways in which I don't feel anxiety about sort of large apocalyptic things is that I, and this is going to sound a bit odd, but um, I mean, I, when I was a kid, I used to have a lot of fear about uh, nuclear annihilation because we all did. It was real as shit. Yeah. It was really, really real. A lot of people don't remember that. But every night on the TV, there was Brezhnev and Reagan basically shaking fists at each other and you thought, well, this is it. You know, I live, Pine Gap is, you know, a couple of hundred k's from Adelaide, a well, thousand k's, but close enough, you know, it would be bad. Yeah, and, and the world has apparently made enough nuclear weapons to destroy every city on the planet well why do they do that it just discovering that as a kid it just seemed like total madness um and that's what it was called mad uh, mutually assured destruction that was the uh, the policy and so i just thought it was a suffocating idea to live under that this total destruction was just was very nearby but i sort of obsessed uh, upon it as a kid and at some point i realized that fear was really actually, it was actually tinged with desire. Um, and this, this is what I wanted to, to talk to you about is that I just think that there's an element of that in the, sort of the huge amount of anxiety you can have about apocalyptic problems. And that Basically what I discovered is that, hang on, I'm a kid. I, part of me actually is desiring this destruction because I was a little bit depressed. I hated my school and obsessing about the destruction of the world was partly something that I was enjoying. And so I, it helped me really get over it, is just accepting that there was a little tiny part of me that sort of hated the world and wanted it and thought, well, wouldn't it, wouldn't it actually be nice if the oceans rose and just sort of swept everything clean? And there's a, a little tiny part of me that felt that way. And as soon as I acknowledged that and I realized, hang on, I'm not so different to the worst people in the world and in, and there's a bit of me that's like that and, and until you have sort of acknowledged that and you think of yourself as being pure and the baddies being completely bad, it is more suffocating but once you sort of sort of acknowledge that it's also in there in you, you sort of realise oh hang on, the, the, the evil's not all out there, it's also a little bit in me and that sort of and once you acknowledge it, you sort of feel better in some way it's not as alien it's actually something that you personally struggle with um it's like an inoculation you know like you know if you want to not get polio or whatever you need a tiny little bit of it inside of you hold down there with your science talk buddy <laughs> no i know what you're saying yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like inoculation yes yeah. so yeah i just as a kid i just realized yeah i need to stop fantasizing about the, the destruction of the world because it wasn't just a fear it was partly a an enjoyable fantasy that i was living out and that's not to say that climate change isn't real, completely believe that it is, but 
I just think that there's an element of animus in obsessing about it because you might as well be obsessing about nuclear weapons or, or a meteorite. You can be just as effective without the anxiety. I, I completely see where you're coming from and I'm really grateful that you brought that up because I have had to acknowledge in very recent weeks of, you know, I was basically, I've been off meds for a long time. Um, I was off meds when I saw you last year. I've been off meds for nearly a year. I was off meds for a year and a half and I had my hand quite firmly on the side of the pool. Then as we got pregnant, I kind of lost grip and I was just kind of treading water. And then maybe about three months ago, I started to not be able, I started to, my head started to go under a bit and then quite a fair bit. And then Audrey just took one look at me and said, buddy, you're going to have to, you have to get back on it because this kid's going to need you and I'm going to need you. And I'm, I'm glad she did. And, and, and since then I've had, I've kind of ramped up the, the work of like, oh, I've got to fucking figure this out. I've got to get on top of this. And I've had to accept that a part of the apocalyptic rumination was looking for a sense of control and wanting to be right. Like as awful as, well, as a couple of weeks ago, it was horrendous here. It was like we had 28 degree humid summer's day, all right, a month ago in the middle of fucking winter, all right? And it's horrible to feel it, you know? And yeah, inside me, there was a little bit of a, I'm fucking right. Sure. I'm fucking right. And I hate that, you know? It's full on to accept, to understand that and accept that. Yeah. It's, it's just humility, really. It's mm. like, is a nice sort of cure for that stuff. And just uh, realizing that you're, you know, there are limits to your power. You can't sort of <laughs> solve everything. You can just sort of push the dial a little bit in the right direction, hopefully. But I can imagine the stakes rise considerably when you are responsible for, for other people. Because I'm, my wife Julie and I, we're just the two of us. And we do plan to have a, a, a family. But um, I can imagine that when you do, it will, it changes everything. What was extraordinary about when Wolfie showed up, like uh, two things, like, so I've had it kind of like inoculated, you know, like, cause I met Georgia when she was 10. All right. And then kind of slowly that things started happening. And then one day overnight, bang, it was, I would lay down my life for you, you know? And it was very interesting that this DNA switch just turned on inside my head. Right. And so I've had this feeling of like, and then she asks about climate change and stuff like that. And when she's younger, I'm, you know, try to have conversations with her. And, and now, so I've kind of had this little kind of taster of that because she was all quite a formed person and, and had her own sense of her own power and ability and stuff like that. And yet when you hold this powerless, you know, lump of reactions in your arms, because he doesn't have all, all he is is reactions right now. He has no will right now. It's everything is, you know, it's like a reflex. All right. He's hungry by reflex. He blinks by reflex. Everything's reflex. And you understand like, yeah, at once it's a really interesting duality of like at once of like, oh, there's this astonishing blackness that existed beyond my own life and beyond Gigi's life where I just couldn't picture the world existing and there was nothing. And yet now there's something, you know, it goes beyond, this is now another 85 years, another 90 years right here. And then that opened up this huge possibility at the same time an equally weighted, <laughs> oh man, <laughs> we've got to sort this out, shows up. And... I actually emailed Jared McKenna, who I find is, is a very interesting person. I've had him on the show and I know enough from my time in sobriety to just, like, there's a line. It says, be quick to see where religious people are right. I don't particularly believe in an interventionist God. There is a great amount of wisdom there that I'm shutting myself off to, though, if I deny everything that gets said there. 
And I was emailing him and I was like, man, how do you deal with it? You know, you like, he, this is a man that smuggled himself on a Manus Island, you know, he's like, <laughs> and buried, chained himself to the front step, front, the gate of Kirribilli House, you know, he's, and you know, the, the overwhelming weight of like, I've, I'm, I'm making a stand for refugees. There's millions of refugees and every one of them is a life that deserves to be saved. Fuck, how am I ever going to fix that? And he just said, look, I really see having a child as a, as an action of hope. And, and, and that is a real part of it. And I have to be with that, Peter, because if I'm not, I'll just suffocate, man. It's yeah. full on. I bet. I bet. Absolutely. I mean, and yeah, you, it's and, and going to sort of religious wisdom makes sense because how can you sort of square up all of that rationally? Mm. It's too much to take in. Um, you've got to have some belief. And I, uh, I'm very rational and, and scientific in my thinking. That's sort of the way I was uh, brought up in some ways. But um, I sort of see the necessity for faith, uh, in a, and, I, and I have a lot of trouble sort of uh, making sense of all that. But I mean, and, and you think about the, the reason why we're in this situation with climate change. I mean, it is because of reason in some ways. It's the industrialized world. It's us throwing off the shackles of our fear of God. I mean, if we had, I mean, God's a perfectly good metaphor for nature. If we had a little bit more fear of God, we might not be in this situation. And so... The world works in very mysterious ways. It's too big for us to completely comprehend. But it seems that because we uh, had a scientific revolution and that was very rational, we're now in a situation where the world is going to bite back. And um, I mean, I think about it a lot. I, I, I'm coming up with a poster about climate change. You're probably not going to like it. <laughs> no, that's all right. Fit <laughs> me. I haven't done my exposure therapy today, so I probably need to. Well, it, it, it'll be in the image. Like it's sort of, um, it's really about. Uh, it's about death in some ways and, and the inevitability of it and that, um, you know, nature's coming to take us all in the end. And we don't really have sort of rational ways of dealing with that very human fear. I can't really... Uh, it's very hard to sum up in a post. No, I'm sure when I see it, I'll know. Oh, that's what he was talking about. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the denial of death is, a, I think, also a big part of it. You know, it's definitely a part of it. You're yeah. trying to Trying to, you know, just be an acceptance of... You know, I yeah, that's that's yeah. Because <laughs> I wonder, I mean, like all all civilizations come to an end. Why would we try to save a civilization that's so intent on destroying itself? I mean, maybe it's going to be a process in which civilization learns. I mean, how can we stop ourselves from going off the cliff if that's what we seem to be so intent on doing? You know, if you step back that far from the situation, then you're not really invested in it anymore. Mm. Um, but this is the way I think about things when I'm trying to come up with a poster design because, you know, you've got to try to look around or get under the problem somehow. If you're right up in it, just bathed in, in emotion, it's sort of, um, it can be all a bit too suffocating, I find. Well, I remember speaking with Dr. Carl about climate change, a very early podcast that I did with him. And he just straight up says, like, listen, humans have to wait until they see Oh, this is why we should, like, they have to wait for the heart attack before they change their diet. I feel a little bit that way. I yeah. feel like a little bit like it's, I mean, because it's not just climate change. It's all the plastics in the ocean. It's, it's us coming uh, in contact, like uh, being confronted with the reality that there's lots of us and nature is finite all of a sudden, whereas in, up until like the last 100,000 years of our evolution, nature was this dominant thing destroying us and now we're laughing at it and sort of living lives that have that are sort of 
uh, less meaningful in some ways as well. Um, so I just, I just think it's an interesting time in our history, but I don't think we're, you know, as an entire species, capable of <laughs> of seeing the situation as it is. It, yeah, I was trying to think about how to distill it down. You know, for the entire evolution of humanity, from the moment that someone decided to make fire, and I, I believe the theory when we came down from the trees. Basically, the, yeah, I believe the theory goes: the moment that someone decided to make fire, had the ability to cook meat, to unlock nutrients that then changed the way our brains developed. All right, so here's this: we're burning a fuel here, and we're ch- changing the way we actually exist because we. Have have found this fire, all right? But there was the, like, fire plus this equals that. But there was an unwritten rule there in brackets going, by the way, the byproduct of this fire is going to run out. You Like, the, the ability to do this is going to run out. Yeah. All right, with impunity. Meanwhile, right? we sort of look at the horizon and go, you, "What are you talking about? This yes. place is massive." Yeah, <laughs> it was fi- totally fine. And for many, many years, there was the balance of the ability for the system to absorb the byproduct of that fire, and whether that fire be the fuel that cooked the food that allowed people to make windmills to whatever, whatever, whatever and then just kind of ramps from there. So yeah. there was this there's this part of the equation that was almost redacted. That we didn't see. For, <laughs> Don't worry about that. That bit's irrelevant. We've yeah, been ignoring that for, for three hundred thousand years. And then I think I think the first article of it was I think nineteen twelve. I think something like that. It was I said was a, I've seen a printed poster of it. It's like oh, it, it acts like a giant blanket. The carbon emissions from the factories that we have act like a giant blanket that warm the earth. And it's like a hundred and something years ago we knew this. And so that oh no 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 and then in the forties and then in the seventies with Exxon and whatever they all knew they knew the whole time. And now suddenly this equation is like oh. Been here the whole time, you know. I was just trying to think about how to how to put it. Like the rules of humanity have been, uh, we developed and we we are who we are, and our life is the way it is because we can use energy outside of our own body to make our de- our ideas happen faster. Mm-hmm. I got from my house to here faster than I could have if I'd used just the calories I put into my body because I used energy captured from the sun stored in a lithium battery that drove me in a bicycle that was, you know, made in a steel foundry using even more energy. Mm-hmm. You know, just the fact of our existence create we need so much more energy than our bodies can consume, which is just the thing that sets us apart from every other animal on the planet. All right? But the externality is that the byproduct of, of using that energy is going to run out, mm. all right? The ability to just put it out and have that equation, just not worry about that, is over. Yeah, we've had our run and, it's, and we have to sort of get off it in some ways. And it's, it's going to be super interesting seeing how it pans out. I mean, I wanted to ask you, how do you feel about uh, nuclear power? Because that sort of... Mate, I feel amazing about nuclear power. I feel that nuclear power has had the worst fucking run ever, all right? And we are really going to have to have a grown-up conversation. Nuclear power is safer than coal. Nuclear power has killed less people than coal. It's got such... There's this really interesting thing that happened in the 70s. There was, like, I think two accidents and then there was this couple of big, like, Live Aid kind of concerts, Mm. you know, about, you know, no nukes and stuff like that and that just basically switched the public's conversation. The conversation absolutely 100% has to be had about nuclear power and also the evolution of how to create it. Um, phase four nuclear reactors, which are, they are designed, they have been there in there since the 60s. They're a molten salt reactor and if they break, they freeze, they don't melt down. It, they're really interesting, but it's a conversation we absolutely have to have because the time, we don't have time. We just do not have time, you know, because the, the conservative um, side of things, they 
can't, they just can't be seen to go, okay, now solar and wind's a great idea because for the last 30 years, 40, 50 years, they've been going, no, solar and wind's a terrible idea. They need to have an out. We need to give them a thing to go, okay, we'll do this. Fucking go nuclear. And it's, it's about that baseload power as well because, I mean, renewables mm. are fantastic, but how can you scale up to mm. – so how you're not going to run China on wind and solar. Like, it's, it's, you, can, you can try and have a bit, but it, even, like, even getting there takes so much energy to, to make all those. Mate, China have ordered, I think it's something like 85 nuclear reactors to be built in the next 12 years. Wow. That's, that's a lot. It's a fucking heat. Yeah. All right. And we, we have to have a grown-up conversation about it. All right. We do. And – yeah, we simply do. Like, where's the – and it was extraordinary storytelling and I loved it. Um, the HBO sh- and Sky Chernobyl. Yeah, it was, was terrific. Incredible, all right? Yet we forget that there was – one of those movies was made every six months from the dawn of passenger airlines, all right, about – Plane disasters. <laughs> and we learned a lot from every single airplane that crashed. Every single one. Something like, there's something like every year there's 40 million passenger planes that take off and land safely, but we only hear about the 11 that don't make it. Nice analogy. Similarly, yeah. it's not mine, it's from Hans Rosling. Um, <laughs> similarly, we need to look at nuclear power like that. We need to remember that there was a time when passenger air travel was very, very dangerous and people died all the time and there were horrible tragedies and people crashed and they had to eat each other. It was real. And now it's one of the safest things you can do. Safer than riding my scooter from my house to here today. And we have to have that conversation about nuclear power and we have to start now. Yeah, no, I, I have thought that way for a long time, but it's sort of, it's anathema for someone to say that who is, I guess, on the left or at least like a part of that set of ideas because it comes back to that notion of impurity because obviously nuclear power produces nuclear waste. And uh, but it's just perhaps a lesser of two evils if you if you deal with it responsibly as the world does. I mean, if it weren't for nuclear power, imagine how much worse the uh, the climate oh, emergency my. would be. Well, you mentioned nuclear waste. The newer model reactors, the stage or the phase four, or they run off spent nuclear fuel. Oh, really? yeah, they run off spent <laughs> nuclear fuel, and they change the they change the half life of it from two hundred thousand years to something like one hundred and twenty years. Like the technology is there, the designs are there. Just like being able to make it work at scale is the trick. That's the thing. There are these amazing technologies that make things better, and I I don't buy into that side of the of the sort of the climate change debate, which is which has an element of it, which is vaguely misanthropic and just in, it is hateful of modernity. I mean, I think there are technological solutions to so much of this and it's we're not going to go back to some some sort of agrarian society in which everyone's just walking everywhere where the things are going to keep going forward and the modern world is going to keep on uh, being difficult for us to wrap our heads around um so I, I just think i like modernity i actually like i'm not so naive that i think that the world was better before uh industrialization i just um no, it was terrible. Infant mortality was horrible. People died of polio and smallpox and a cut could kill you. Exactly, exactly. I think like it's but, – but when, when you're young and you sort of – you start to become an adult and you go, oh, the world is so confusing. Why is, it, why is it bad like this? You can easily get sucked into narratives of, oh, things are, things are so bad. And before they were great, we need to sort of uh, 
Um, Make Australia great again. Exactly. It's they're the same. Like that's. I try to talk about this in in the book in in terms of the the, the posters that I make is that the the people on the the far left and the far right are so similar. And when it, taking it back to Australia, in that they um. They they don't really believe in Australia, um, you know. The, the and this is going to be hard to hear for the people on the uh, the far right is that they're not very patriotic. They don't actually see Australia's ability to be large and welcoming. They sort of have this sort of stingy view of us as being um, as the nation that can't uh, bring people into it. And, and make them feel welcome. And the, the people on the far left are the same. They don't really believe in, in Australia's ability to make us all feel welcome. So it's sort of, I don't know, I just think those people are two sides of the same coin. In the middle, there's this always uh, people who are quietly getting on with their lives. It, yeah. about Just to go back for a second about the idea of modernity, I was, I was thinking yeah. about this. I was thinking about, you know, we, we look around this room, right? every single object that surrounds us created was took an enormous amount of of energy to create, all right? The water that you and I are drinking, the water that if, if you've got time to tweet about, oh, we should all go back to this or go back to that, it's like bear in mind that the energy required to, to collect, purify and transport the water that you drank or flushed your toilet with today or even the, the fact that you can flush a toilet, all right, you're not shitting in an open sewer in the street. The amount of the, life, the life that you have to complain about the world exists because of the way we use energy. And mm. we, you just have to be in acceptance of that. I could be as vegan as I want, Peter, but I have to accept that, oh, yeah, I take planes. Uh, everything in my house was made in a steel foundry, which was found you fired with coal. And to be able to, you know, use a refrigerator to refrigerate the breast milk that my wife is expressing to feed our boy, like, takes a huge amount of energy. And I have to be in acceptance of that. Okay, so this is a part of life. You can't then go, oh, I'm eating kale and therefore I'm better than you. Therefore I'm pure and it's like, yeah. Because yeah. otherwise, if you're looking at the world like modernity that way, you you start to just be disgusted with everything. Like, oh, it's all wrong. Everything, all these sort of luxuries are, are just contaminants in some way. And it's, I don't know, I just think viewing the world that way, it, it becomes so sort of... Um, it's something that you you suffer when you're an adolescent, especially wanting the world to be completely. It's it's a puritanical view. I mean, it's there's that element in sort of the uh, any sort of political debate, but it's also discussed in religions in that way. Is the why? Because the appeal of purity is a it's a thing that cults often use. Why is that so seductive? Why is the appeal to purity so seductive? Well, it's it's certainty, I guess. It's that belief that that you're bulletproof, and that if you just have this one thing that you are fighting for, then you're right, and you can be certain. You don't really have to question yourself, um, and that's very seductive, especially when you're young. I just, uh, it's it's everywhere, and it's, it's more and more today because we don't have these these large unifying ideas to to bring us together. At, at least they're sort of being shaken up a lot. And I just, I wish I could create a succinct way to sort of help young people not be seduced into it because you, you should be politically active. You should sort of try to improve the world. But when you're 100% certain and sort of and believe yourself to be good and the other side to be evil or some sort of variant of that word, 
then you are going to make things worse inevitably. And I think I was sort of seduced into that way of thinking. I let myself be seduced into it because it's a good warm feeling you get that, oh, wow, I'm sure I'm on the right path. The others, they're the bad guys. And it's just dangerous. And I think that there's, and there are all sorts of messages in our culture that sort of, that have been left throughout history, the great artists, the great writers who have allowed us to see that that sort of that path of purity is uh, is dangerous, and uh, and that's that's I think some people who read my book will be slightly it'll be not what they expected because they would have thought oh this is going to be the rah rah message about how we should you know love Peter's posters and hate the other side but really it's the book's very much about me coming to terms with just growing up and saying I'm not always right inevitably I'm going to get things wrong and that's the sort of I don't know, the best way to go through life if you're going to uh, not make things worse than they already are. I get why the appeal to purity is is there because you just, like you mentioned before, you just want to hold on to something. And, yeah. and I wonder, is there, could, could a way out of this mess be that if we just as a community, as a society, try to do a lot more work of like just being okay with ambiguity and being okay with we don't know how it's going to work out let's just try and look after each other and we'll see what happens. Like, or just being like being more resilient to uncertainty and being more resilient to change. It's, it's hard, isn't it? Like how, how do you sort of make a system that promotes that? Because you look at our political discourse, anything that's happened and it's not sort of a bunch of people going, Oh, I see the pros and cons. It's, it's, people on one side being as obnoxious as possible to the people on the other side and everyone else sort of going, well, this is entertaining, I guess. I mean, they're making strong points and it's, <laughs> you know, so how do you... It's funny when the orange man yells. <laughs> exactly. He, he's an entertainer, but uh, it's grotesque and that's, um, you know, and, and the people who agree with him like him because he's grotesque. It's, uh, it's difficult. I really... I just think a message of, um, you know, love your enemies is, it's so difficult to make that popular, but I think that's exactly why it's so, it's, that's why I think it's ultimately powerful. That's why I'm giving you this poster, um, Real Power Forgives, because there's nothing more powerful than that. It's, it, it, there just isn't. And I sort of, and that's where I sort of hang my hat and where I sort of leave my, faith in a way is that um, forgiving the other side having empathy having love for the people who you strongly disagree with that is the most powerful thing you, you can have and that's it, it gives me some sort of feeling of um, I don't know it's better than purity it's this sort of it's this ambiguity that makes me feel sort of safe in the world well it frees you both it frees you from the horrible feeling inside yourself of, I can't stand those people. Because you're yeah. carrying that shit around. You're carrying that resentment within your body and all it's doing is, is mutating your cells into cancer. All yeah, right? it's corrosive, that sort of anger. But it's I get it as well. It's this warm anger that you can carry around and, and it's precious. Um, but it's, and you can see it in other people as well. Yeah. Oh, I'm angry about that too. Let's be angry together. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Let's be mates. We can be angry together. Yeah, but I've been that way and it just, it tears you up. And I think in the long term, it's sort of, you end up doing things that you regret. And, and I've done that. That's why I needed to talk about it in the book because I didn't want to keep doing it. I wanted to, 
uh, overcome that. And I just wanted to leave some sort of message for people who, uh, especially people who are younger than me, who are getting into politics and perhaps starting to feel those feelings of, yeah, this is what I believe and I can, um, um, <laughs> which is great. But there is a, um, there's definitely a way not to do it. And I've done that. So um, I'd like to sort of talk to those people about how they don't have to make the same mistakes I've made. Would would you go so far as to go to a you know go onto a campus and and go hey come to Peter Drew's uh, safe campaigning for things you believe in lecture <laughs> and it's like but look oh God man we've all been there like to be in your early twenties and and demolish a box of goon wine until four in the morning with someone while you shout about how much better the world would be if only is a really exciting thing to do yeah and it's that's not bad like it's not sort of it's something to go through, I guess, but all you have to do is look at history and see how destructive that can be. When a bunch of, like, it's it's a quote of uh, from Machiavelli, like, what to do about young men is a serious political problem because once, a, especially young men get together and start sort of going, yeah, we, we've got the answers, we can fix the world. Um, it's it, That's how you get revolutions and there are good things about that and, and terrible things. So I just... And history is never going to stop. Like we're we're in a situation now when things could get terrible again. And so, I, I just think, yeah, if I could leave any sort of message about just having a little bit of caution about your your certainty and your sense of moral purity, then perhaps you should just take a lesson from history. So, what do you do in the day? I'm I'm guessing I, I'm I've had to kind of back right away. I haven't looked at Reddit in two years because it was just destroying me um, because I get ruminating and obsessive and I have to be very careful and I don't have Twitter on my phone anymore. I, I use it when I am on the live, when, when, when I'm live tweeting a show about an octopus and a dragon having a singing fight, which is fucking amazing by the way. It's just <laughs> preposterous that I get to do this and that. It's just, I love it. But I'm guessing you're the kind of person that gets up in the morning and, you know, you'll look in your phone and you'll see the news of the world and you're the kind of person that thinks about the world a lot. So how do you how do you steel yourself against, fuck, this is happening today? Yeah, I mean, I do, like, let it just wash over me a bit and, and, and try to, like, as an experiment, like, to, to do it in a way that, okay, I'm going to get into Twitter and social media, let it sort of just bombard me and let the anxiety come up in some ways because then the ideas come out of that. But I'd sort of do it in a way which is like an experiment so that I'm not just habitually doing that. And and then the ideas appear as a sort of a relief from that experience. But when I'm not trying to come up with new ideas, I try to stay away from social media because it is, it's endless and it can just completely overwhelm you. But it's useful as well for, for generating new ideas. So, um, But I just, yeah, obviously some people just do it all the time and just get completely lost in it and it, it changes who you are. Like, yeah. so, And I sort of, I like reading books. I like slow things that are very considered and I try to do that as well. So, um, yeah. What does self-care look like for you? Um, I've, I've joined a gym recently, um, which is which is great. Uh, Julie and I, uh, we've only been doing it for like less than a week. So, um, But I'm, I'm so surprised that I actually really enjoy it, just having that sort of, that routine that, that is, and it connects you to your body again and release all, the, all those endorphins. Family is super important. Julie's uh, grandparents are from Italy, and so there's every Sunday night there's a big uh, family get together, and that just resets everything. 
Man, so my, my cousin, she married and she's like, they're all Adelaide. We, when we first came to Australia, we went to Adelaide. So there's a bunch of lithos down there. But she married into an Italian situation. And the, Itali- the, the Adelaide Italian situation is epic. <laughs> there's one of her husband's mates or brothers, I don't know. They, they ended up buying every house on the street. So there's five houses in a row and they knocked all the fences in the backyard out. <laughs> so there's five families live next door to each other and all the kids just roam. Oh, that was great. Mate. It's like an, an estate. Could you just imagine? But having that, that weekly thing. Yeah, it grounds everything and it just reminds you that this is what's important. These, and it's just this situation, everyone trusts each other and you can say anything. I love that. And that's something that I had to get used to as well when I met Julie. And talking to Julie about everything. I mean, we, she's a creative as well. She makes scarves and socks. And so she's always working on her creative projects, struggling with them. At the moment, she's working on a design. And I was saying to her, she was getting really sort of testy about it. <laughs> and, and then afterwards, she... A couple of days went by and then she sort of said, oh, I'm sorry about how, how I've been behaving. And I said, that's all right. I understand you've, you know, you've invested your entire ego in the success of this one design. She's like, yeah, that's, that's it. Because you've got to do that. You've got to just sort of uh, put everything on the line. Um, so, yeah, we understand each other and we talk constantly. I mean, my self-care is not perfect. Um, Mate, you sound like you got those, those three pillars there sound pretty good. There's a lot more than a lot of people have. Yeah, I think I'm better than I used to be for sure. And just acknowledging that, yeah, you can slip up. And I, I used to just try to be invincible. And I, I'm quite comfortable being sort of more vulnerable these days. I just sort of feel, and I, and I don't mean in sort of, a, when you talk about vulnerability, you can, you can sort of feel, you know, the more masculine type sort of going, what do you mean? You know, <laughs> but... I just think that you can be masculine and vulnerable in a way. So like, I, I, if you look at the great men of, uh, of literature and history, there's a lot of you know, heroic figures that cried a lot. And it's just, I think that idea of masculinity as being something which isn't vulnerable is just this cartoon version of masculinity that's only exist in the last 50 years, basically. And I, it's, it's like this byproduct of a uh, post-war generation that just sort of had too much trauma to deal with, basically. And masculinity throughout history has always been, as it had a big heart. That's what I, that's what I believe. Um, so I, so when I think talk about vulnerability, I think um, that's m- more masculine. If you don't cry about anything, it means you don't care about anything. Exactly. And what's what's more masculine than going out and doing something because you care? Yeah. Seriously. It, it's like it's crying over the the grand final. You know, that's no one says that's not masculine. But <laughs> We'll have a conversation off air about the legalities of it all, but I'd love to come put posters up with oh, you next yes. time. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, That'll be fun. <laughs> that'd be hilarious. Yeah. That'll be fun. But although I should warn you, I've only I've been arrested three times, and it's it's always when I'm with somebody else because when I'm when I'm on my own, people just go, "Oh, there's a guy doing his job," but there's two people doing a job which one person should be able to do. Everyone goes, "Hang on a second. That's Osha. <laughs> right. But, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll figure maybe, something out. Maybe you can school me in how to do it and you can, you know, I can put on the high-vis and... Well, when, when, the, uh, when I come up with the, uh, the climate change poster, I could send you a kit and a, <laughs> with little instructions on how to do it. It's pretty simple. Yeah, maybe. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm going to say yes, because it terrifies me. 
So I'll say yes. You would be disappointed how how simple and it's fun as well. Like you, there's easy ways of doing it in which you um, you know just stick it up where there are other posters. You'll it'll be good. And you know what? I live in an electorate that needs that poster. Correct. Correct. <laughs> Um, and if I get arrested for it, then I get to speak on a on a larger scale about why it's, why I'm there doing it. Because I, I mean, like, isn't that it? Isn't yeah. that it? No, that's that's it. That's that, I mean, it's. I mean, look, the worst that can happen is you can get a fine. You know, I've gotten fines before. You pay the fine. Yeah. It'd be it'd be fun. <laughs> it wouldn't be fun. <laughs> I have to explain to my wife, honey, I can't come home to take the kids home from dancing because I'm in jail. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, I really could talk to you all day, man. But um, you know, you're a busy man. I'm I'm so grateful that we got to do this, man. Thanks for having me. That was Peter Drew. You can find him online at Peter Drew Arts. Uh, he's also at PeterDrewArts.com, uh, where you can buy his excellent book, Poster Boy which is a fantastic, fantastic read. A big thanks to everyone that helped me make the show this week. There's most certainly not something I do by myself. Andy Ma, my audio producer, Rachel Barrett, my show producer, Clancy, Errol, and Shannon at The Batuta Advocate for letting me use their exceptional studios uh, because my podcast room is a baby room now. And a big thanks as well to Mike Mills, also known as Toe Hider, for making all the great music you heard today. We're going to talk on Friday, as we do every Friday, but it'll be just me that time. Until we speak then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. 